0: I'm often awe-stricken with the Lord's faithfulness. I think for me, intellectually, I I understand that God is faithful. I understand in my mind, I know what God has done for me. But there's times where that really moves me. When I really think about the Lord's faithfulness and the lengths that He's gone to set me apart. To set me apart from this world that's broken, that's, that's beat down, that's in shambles. That he's pursued me, he's sought me out, he's called me, he's saved me. That one day he wants to be with me for an eternity. That's God's faithfulness. Um, and we respond to that. And I, I also I'm awe stricken by the faithfulness that people display in response to that. The last two weeks here at Stone Point have been exciting. Two weeks because we've, getting, we've been able to see that faithfulness. For the last several weeks, over a month, we've been talking about faithfulness and what it means to be faithful. But we got to see practically what that looks like as people begin to do that. Two weeks ago at our baptism celebration, we had 14 people. 14 people go public with their faith in Jesus. Amen? Amen. 14 people (laughs) proclaimed their faithfulness because they understood at one point in time they were this They were part of this world. They were broken. They were separated from the presence of a holy God. And that separation would have endured for an eternity. But they came to an understanding of that situation of who they were. And they put their faith in Jesus. And they displayed that faithfulness at baptism. And we celebrated that. Last week we had Stone Point Serves. Where hundreds of people... Hundreds of faithful people who had the same conversion, the same experience, and the same understanding. One day I was this, the next day I'm this, and I'm saved, and I respond to God's faithfulness for me by our faithfulness. And hundreds of people over two communities went out and served people. They were faithful with the work of their hands, of their time. And over this series, we've talked about being faithful with our parenting, faithful with our time, faithful with our resources, and to continue that this morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be faithful with your body. Now, a lot of things can come to mind when you start thinking about being faithful with your body, right? Is he about to tell me that I need to go on a diet and I need to start exercising? Some of us, maybe, yeah, no duh. You can look at my profile. I could diet and exercise, but no, that's not going to be the topic. I can set your mind at ease. That's not where we're going to go with this this morning, and. I think where I want to go and where I believe the Lord has led us here is much more important for us than just deciding, hey, I need to be faithful in my body, so I'm going to start eating right or I'm going to start exercising. If we're not careful, we head down that road, we begin to put things out of sorts. We can work for the gym body, but who are we really getting the gym body for? But what does it look like to be faithful with our body? But I want to start with telling us what our condition is, what our body is. Because our body, if you're in Christ, you're here this morning, and you're a believer, you put your faith and your trust in Christ, Scripture says that you are now God's temple, that his presence dwells within you by his Holy Spirit. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom God gave you? He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with the price. We sang of that earlier, how Jesus went to the cross and he gave up his life to redeem your body so that God's spirit could dwell within you. And Paul says, so glorify God with your body. Rightly so. We could walk away with that and understand what it means to be faithful with our body because we're bought with the price. Our body is not our own. We belong to God. Where the presence of God lives, we should glorify God with our body. Now, there are a lot of implications that come along with that. But that's our condition. But that condition was not always so. If we look at Romans chapter 7, I'll have this for you. This is, what, this is what Paul says regarding his body, this realization that he has. In 7 verses 18, he says, uh, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He says, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, Paul realizes his problem. He realizes our problem when it comes to our body. The problem that we have is sin, and it's that sin that dwells within. That's how we begin. In chapter 5, Paul tells that, 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 that we all come from the seed of Adam, and because of Adam's sin, all share in that sin. And Paul says this, that sin, it is sin that dwells within me. But then he says in 21, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So apart from Christ, apart from that indwelling of God's spirit, it is a body of death that we have. Ultimately, we're going to die, and it's going to be eternal separation from God. It is the ultimate death that we have. And Paul recognizes this. He says it, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he goes on, and he actually answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, with the understanding of what Jesus has done. To set our bodies apart. To be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Be the temple of the Lord. But now I want to jump way backwards. And begin to frame this picture for us as we move forward. And what it means. Hopefully by the end of this we can come away with that understanding. And a clearer picture of what it means to be faithful with our body. Aside from just diet and exercise so to speak. But if we jump backwards. Way backwards. I want to go to the garden. So God created heavens and the earth. He creates Eden. Inside of Eden, he, he, he creates a garden, and inside that garden, he puts mankind. And from several weeks ago, when we we're learning to be faithful with our work, he puts mankind in the garden to work it and to keep it. But it's in the garden there where God's presence dwelled, and man dwelled there with God face to face, hand in hand, conversations, walking together, and perfection. As much as we we think of, I can only imagine what heaven's going to be like, I can only imagine what Eden was like. But they're the same pictures. We go from Eden, what was perfect, what was good, what was very good. And in the end, God's word tells us that he's going to set all things right and he's going to return us to that Eden where everything is very good and we're in the presence of God for an eternity as God designed it to be in Eden. But you have man walking with God there and the presence of God was with him. But something happens, right? We all know, Genesis chapter 3, that sin enters the picture. Mankind was deceived, and they fell. They fell into sin, and immediately when that sin came upon them, they began to have that knowledge of good and evil, and they understood their evilness, because they disobeyed God. And all of a sudden, sinfulness is there, and they realize that they were naked. The first thing they realize, hey, we're naked. You're naked. Why are we naked? Because all of a sudden, they're exposed. Right? Right? So they sought to cover themselves. Their first response to their nakedness was an attempt to cover themselves. And Scripture tells us that that cover, covering was not sufficient. So God covered them. He provided skin for them. But oftentimes when I talk about this part of the story... And God providing a cover for them, he provided skin for them because their fig leaves weren't sufficient. Skin was sufficient because it came from the Lord. But the question that I realized one time that really sobered my thinking on sinfulness and the cost of it is in Eden, in perfection, where death was not present. All of a sudden, he provided skin. Where did God get the skin? Something had to die. Blood was shed to cover them. But then they were tainted by that sin. And scripture tells us from that point, God cast them out of Eden. Specifically, the the word translated in the Hebrew there is he drove them out. His holiness could not stand. His presence could not be. Sin could not be in his presence. So he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Scripture tells us that then he closed the way. Then cherubim and flaming swords would guard the way back to that place of his presence on earth with his creation. That's our condition. That's what sin did. That's the brokenness that was created in our bodies because of Adam's sin. And we share in that today. That's the reality. That's the depth that we're utterly consumed by where Paul would understand it is sin that dwells in me, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. But God, at this point, a theme that begins to run through our Bible is God pursuing after his creation. God's desire to once again dwell with his people, with his creation. God's desire to have that perfect relationship restored to where man could be in his presence, he could be with his creation. So thousands of years go by and God, you can read in your Bible, he begins to set things in order. And set things up. He he goes to Abraham and he promises this man named Abraham um, that he would make a nation from him. You know, and then a promise to Abraham to Isaac to to his son Jacob, and then from Jacob comes the nation of Israel. And these are the people that God sets apart for His own possession. And He tells them that you are my people. I'm going to be your God. He calls them out of bondage, out of out of Egypt. If you've been tracking with us in our study of Exodus, we're well into that study. But you see when he calls them out, he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. This is how you start to ask. If you're going to be my people, this is how you need to begin to behave for your good, for my glory. And then he gets to a point in Exodus chapter 25, and he tells them, you know what? I want to dwell with you. You're my people. I want to return to dwell and be my presence, to be with my creation. He says, I want to dwell with you, so you're going to build me a house The house is the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It's later the temple. And he gives very clear, specific instructions, if you've been tracking with us, on what that tabernacle is supposed to look like. You can read that in Exodus 25 to 27. In 2 Chronicles, you can read the description of Solomon when he builds the temple. But it's very interesting that the imagery that's used, the things that are present within that tabernacle, within that temple, the furnishings, are images of of flowers and lilies and trees, of almond blossoms, pomegranates. All of these descriptive words that describe a garden. And it's God's attempt to form a house for him for his presence to dwell as it once was in Eden, in a garden where his presence dwelled with his people, with his creation. And he's having them build this for him so that his presence could come down and be among his people. So that's a wonderful thing right there. As you see the story play out to this point right here, God is establishing in this people a place for his presence to dwell dwell for the first time since the Garden of Eden. So now, he gives us some instruction. They can build this temple. Now, it's not enough to just build the temple for him to be there. He wants his presence to be with his people so people would go into that temple, into that tabernacle. He establishes then the priesthood. So he tells these men, these are the ones that are going to come in and serve me as Adam did work in the garden to work it and keep it. So when he creates his house in the tabernacle, there's work to be done. So people need to come and things need to be attended to. But remember why God cast out Adam and Eve? Because of their sinfulness. If he creates a place for his presence to dwell and his presence cannot be in sin, sin cannot be in his presence, he has to make a way for people to come in. You see the picture? And this is where I want to go. I know that's a long way to set this up, but I think it's important for us to understand where we came from and the links that God goes to make a way for us to enter into his presence. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 28, we're going to read what this looks like. What God did, the requirements that he put into law, to make a way for people to come into his presence. I want to pray for us real quick in light of all that I just said as we move forward from here. that the Lord would just help us and help me to communicate and you guys to grasp us, to grasp what God has done for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your endless pursuit of your creation, Lord, to set right what was broken in us. The way that you made for us, Lord. And I just pray for us that we would land there with a clear picture of that, Lord. And that would prompt us to respond in a way that glorifies you, Lord. We love you and we thank you. I pray for our time, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in Exodus chapter 28, you begin to see the requirements in the law for these priests. The ones that would go in and would serve him. And in verse 1 of 28, he says to Moses, He says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So he says, You're going to make holy garments. Holy garments. And they're for glory and for beauty. Glory for God, beauty to set them apart so that they stand out, so that they are different than every other, every other person. Of the, of the people of Israel, there's some two million people that came out of Egypt. And of those two million people, you have, what's that, five. Five right now that are going to get to go into God's presence. But God's going to set them apart. And he says, make them holy garments. For glory and for beauty. Then he says, "You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood." Now the word consecrate means to sanctify, to make holy, to set apart. It's a very important word in light of where we're going. And then in verse four, he says, "These garments that they shall make are a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash." And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So remember when sin entered the picture in the garden, the first thing that Adam and Eve did, was realize their nakedness and their attempt to cover themselves. That covering was insufficient, so God covered them himself. And here you have these men in their sinfulness, part of Adam are going to come into the presence of God, but something has to take place. Something has to cover them in order for them to enter into that presence. And if you read the rest of chapter 28, you have very detailed instruction on those garments. Every single piece and the symbolism that it has. And if you desire to be blessed, I challenge you to look at every piece that is in that list and the symbolism of that piece and who those items point to. I promise you will be blessed. But if you look at that list in chapter 4 or verse 4, it says, A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. How many do you see there? Six. I was waiting for somebody's. somebody. Somebody said it. There's six. Right. But if you look at verse 36, he says, you shall make a plate. In, in chapter nine, 39, verse 30, it says a crown. He says, you'll make a crown of pure gold and on, engraved on it like the engraving of a signet. It shall say, holy to the Lord. So you have seven items that they are to put on themselves. Seven is a number of completeness. You have the complete provided covering for these men that are going to enter in to God's presence, into his tabernacle, and minister, and serve him, and worship him there. But it's not enough here to just cover them. This is how God said to cover them. But in chapter 29, it says this is how you actually consecrate them. This is how you set them apart. This is how they're to be made holy to enter in. So there's covering God covered Adam and Eve, but then cast them out. A consecration has to take place. In chapter 29, I don't have this for you on the screen. I'm going to read it for you, and it's it's quite a bit. And I'm going to read it for you, so please stick with me. But I believe it's important for us to read and see the picture here. And what God required, what God put forth in the law, to make a way for people to come into his presence. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me. Chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Now this is what you shall do to them, uh, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. You can underline or mark without blemish. Remember that, without blemish. And then unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall bring his sons to put clothes on coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then he continues, then begin to note how many times he says, You shall. In verse 10, he says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle. And, sh- and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat in the covers of, that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then verse 15, you shall take one of the rams and uh, take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them in, in its pieces and its head, and the burn and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Verse 19, "You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of the right hands and on the great toes of their feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. You can mark verse 20. We'll come back to that. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Verse 22, you shall take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall... You shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Verse 26, you shall take the breast of the ram and Aaron's ordination, of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. It shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is con- contributed from the ram of ordination from what, is, what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel for their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron you shall, shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place shall wear them seven days." Verse 31, you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread this is, that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh with ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus... You shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. And every day you shall offer a bull as sin as a sin offering for atonement. There's a lot happening there. Y'all with me? There's a lot happening right there. If we jump over to verse 43, just a few more verses. It says, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. It says, I am the Lord, their God. Amen and amen and amen and amen, amen. But church, that is God's righteous requirement for those who would serve him, who would enter into his presence. All of that, all of that. Picture, picture, Picture the scene, if you can, with me. The blood, I mean, just on the side of the altar, poured in front of the altar. Not to be gross, but 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 it's significant the entrails the fat the liver the lobes the specificity specificity of all of that but all of that to take place so that men could enter into eden back into the presence of god all of that was required and it was required daily exactly Daily, this happened over and over and over, a perpetual due to cover and atone for the brokenness and the sinfulness of mankind so that, the way we can look at this, you could word this, so that man could enter into God's presence. I think a better way to say that is so that God could dwell among his people again. God desired it so much that he made a way, but the requirement had to be this. This is the way God, in his justice and in his righteousness, determined for people to do that so that he could dwell with man again. But here's the big picture. Here's the good news. Here's the goodness of the message that I want to get to. There's everything that they had to do. Here's what we do. Better yet, before, here's what we do. Here's what God did. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Wonderful words in your Bible. But, the writer of Hebrews says, he says, But when Christ appeared as high priest, Aaron was the high priest. This is everything Aaron had to do and his sons as priests to do, to get into the temple and to minister and to serve the Lord. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, there is a more perfect tent. It's not made with human hands. What Jesus said to the Pharisees one day, he says, this temple is not going to stand. One day, not one stone will remain. I will destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. And it's going to be, according to the writer of Hebrews, a a greater and more perfect tent And then verse 12, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, what was done daily over and over and over. One day's sacrifice was not enough to cover the next day's sacrifice, he says, for once and for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, the priests with ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, how much more? All that had to take place that we just read, the entirety, however, the seven minutes, it took me to read that to you on and on, daily, over and over, continually making these sacrifices and and consecrating themselves. Jesus does it once and for all, gives some of himself because he was without blemish. How much more, he says, will that purify our bodies and our conscience from dead works that's what, he, that's what he equates it to. He equates all that. All that that we just read in Exodus 29. Did you catch that? The writer of Hebrews, what he says, those were dead works. They did nothing for them other than to, for a day, for a time, allow them to go minister before the Lord. Dead works. But Jesus, because of his goodness and his life and his shed blood, brings life and brings good works that we should respond to. Now, because of that grace and what Christ has done, this is what Paul says and how we should respond. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says these words. In light of all that, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, if you read through Romans, the first, because of the first 11 chapters that Paul says, because of everything we just read, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, I appeal to you. He says, I urge you. I beseech you because of what God has done by the mercies of God, everything that he has done for us. I appeal to you, I urge you, I beseech you, and he says to present your bodies to God. Paul used this verb earlier to steer believers away from sin. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 14, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says, Do not present your your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. He says, but present yourselves to God as those, who have, as those who have been brought from death to life. Right? Remember, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus' death, his resurrection, which we sang about earlier, one day the ground began to quake. The veil was torn. The separation was removed. Fully we were able to move, move into the presence of God. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Again, note the terminology. You're not bound to Exodus 29. You're not bound to Exodus 28. You're not bound to the entirety of the law. You are under grace. And that's because of the death and the life of Jesus And your faithfulness to that, your belief and your trust in him as Lord, as Savior and Lord of your life, brings you, gifts you with the Helper, with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God living within you as his temple. And he says to be a living sacrifice. As daily sacrifices had to die. Remember what Jesus did in Hebrews nine twelve. He says, he entered once for all into the holy places. Once for all, for all of us, for of all time. It was enough. Jesus is not going to the cross again. There's no need for him to go to the cross again. Oftentimes, we want to do that. We can lose grip on the assurances we have and what Jesus has done, and we want to put him back on the cross to die for us again rather than remembering and knowing that he died once for all, for all time. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is a daily, ongoing sacrifice. But it's a living sacrifice. We can't lay down our life. There's nothing, our life doesn't pay anything. Jesus' life paid. Because he was without blemish. We have blemish. He was without it. He laid it down, so we do not. So we have a daily, ongoing sacrifice of ourselves, giving ourselves to the Lord's work constantly. And it's to be holy and acceptable. Again, note the terminology. It's to be consecrated, to be sanctified. It's to be acceptable. It's undefiled. It's clean. It's a well-pleasing sacrifice. Let our incense rise. In Psalm 34, David says, that it would be a pleasing aroma before the Lord what we give. And it's a, our spiritual worship. The word for spiritual there is the word uh, uh, logikos. It's the word where we get logical or reasonable. What Paul says, this is your reasonable worship. The point he's making here is that in a lot of everything that God has done, everything that Jesus has done, the life he lived, the death that he paid, covering us completely, consecrating us and setting us apart. He says, it is reasonable. It is only logical. He's like, church, this is our reasonable response to what he has done for you. And if you trust in him for that, it's only logical that you give your life to him. It doesn't make any sense to go back to your old way of thinking. If you've been tracking along in the book of Exodus, how many of us have put our hand in our face on account of the people of Israel and how often they fall back? For some reason, they wanted to go back to their their sin. They wanted to go back to their slavery. It wasn't it making sense because they didn't realize what God was doing for them. Therefore, an entire generation of Israelites had to die in the wilderness because they didn't get it. It wasn't then. What should have been a two-week trip was forty years because they continually wanted to go back to bondage. Paul says it's, it only makes sense in light of what God has done for us to respond in faithfulness in the giving of ourself to his service now as our bodies don't move without any purpose without our minds this is brilliant where Paul goes with this he understands sin and righteousness begin in the mind I don't take a step without my mind telling my body to move all would agree so what Paul says following that, he says, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But then he says in verse two, he says, what not to do. Here's what you do, here's what you don't do. Is do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or to this world or this age. He says, don't be conformed. It's the word where we get, um, we get the word for schematic. He says, don't fashion yourself after someone else's pattern. Don't conform yourself. Don't don't build your life around the world. Don't build your mind or your character around what the world says. Build it around what God says. The way we become conformed is we are then transformed. That's where we get the word metamorphosis. It's not enough to just change. We need to be transformed. We need to turn. We need to become something entirely different. We were once this, broken, sinful, separated apart from God, devoid of his presence We had to transform, be recreated into what we are now. But as Paul says, we still inhabit a body of death. But nonetheless, it's sanctified. It's covered by the blood of Jesus to possess the Spirit of God. So Paul says, do not fashion yourself according to this world. This world is a twisted and broken version of God's original creation. It's not what was good. This world is everything bad. It is just not good. Look around. Look around, but then look at yourself. The world's not good. We're not good in it. But praise be to God and Christ Jesus our Lord who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light and set us apart in it for his kingdom, for his purpose. And he tells us, don't be conformed to that. Be transformed to the image of God to which you were created. And it's in this age. The word transfer, transfer, translated world, it means age, which indicates this is temporary, church. Everything that we're in is temporary. God made a way for us to return to a semblance of Eden in a broken and fallen world to where his presence dwells within us. To send us on to eternity, to work us, carry us through to eternity, where he's going to restore the Eden. This is temporary where we're at, but the pattern God would have us fashion after would be that of goodness, selflessness, trust, and gentleness, and truth. Not the world's way, of greed, deceit, and violence, and lust, and selfishness. They're completely contradictory things. But this transformation is accomplished through what? The renewing of our minds, he says. It all begins here in our minds. It's a conscious choice to put our faith in Jesus in the first place, but it's a conscious choice to determine how we're gonna move forward and how we're gonna to respond to situations. So when it comes to being faithful with our body, it's a conscious choice. It's using your mind daily, moment by moment, situation by situation, to respond in a way that glorifies God. It's not enough for those priests in the Old Testament to be covered by the holy garments, to have blood splattered all over those garments, to be consecrated in all that they had to do. It wasn't enough for them to just do all that and then just walk off into the temple thinking about beating somebody up over here or being mad at somebody over here or having pride and arrogance. Look at me and all this regalia that I got. I get to go in the temple. You see that, guys? How foolish would that be? You have to renew your mind. You have to think differently. Approach God with a reverence and a fear for the Lord and who he is and what he has done and it's reasonable that we would respond that way. Chuck Swindoll says, says this. Um, he says, as we respond to the call through submission, the Lord does the transforming. Because we can ask the question, all right, that's, all this sounds good, but how do we do this? But it comes through submission to the Lord. We submit to him, we trust in him as Savior, but also as Lord of our life. If he's Lord, that means Submission. He says, as we respond to the call through submission, the Lord does the transforming. We learn to view the world through the grid of Scripture. And we learn to respond as Scripture prescribes. The Holy Spirit, promised by Jesus on the eve of His crucifixion, uses Scripture, our experiences, trials and hardship, and fellowship with other believers to renovate us from the inside out. He says gradually and supernaturally our minds begin to think as God thinks, desire what God desires, love as God loves, and see things with the same perspective as he sees them. As this becomes a reality, we are able to discern the will of God and to cooperate with him in accomplishing it. Do you see the picture? The way we do this is we fill our minds and our hearts with God's word. Psalm 119.11. I will hide your word in my heart in order to keep my way pure. How does a young man keep from sin? By guarding it according to your word. You take in God's word and the scriptures. You appropriate them. You study them. And by His Spirit, He'll give you the clarity to apply those to your situation. So our bodies, when we think of being faithful with our bodies... See, it's not just diet and exercise to fix this physical thing. It's what's on the inside. We don't need to be whitewashed tombs, but inward we're dead men's bones. But it starts in our minds to make the decision to study, to get to know, to connect, to allow him to begin to shape us by his desires the way he loves, to see things as he sees them. But to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice is consecration. That is our setting ourselves apart. It is a supernatural, consecrating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that we get to participate in. But being faithful with our bodies is, is not just these things. What we put into our body is important. I mean, you can't negate that. Our in, indulgences you know, can be unhealthy Abuse of, say, drugs and alcohol. I mean, you don't have to be a believer to understand how that damaging that is to the body. But so yes, if, if we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, temple of God, we need to take care of that. But if that's our end goal, that's not enough to set ourselves apart. In the Old Testament, the people went to the temple to communicate with the Lord, to make sacrifices and to worship. For hundreds of years, The reason they went to the temple was to communicate with the Lord to make sacrifices and to worship. So as His temple now, we should be communicating with the Lord ourselves. We should be sacrificing our desires and our wants. And we should be worshiping Him. But things are no different. And what we do, the means of doing it is different. And it's because of what Jesus has done. This is glorifying God with our bodies. This is being faithful with our bodies. It's daily communicating with him. It's being prayerful with him. It's sacrificing what we want on the altar of our faith and worshiping him with our lives. And that includes our bodies and what we do with our bodies, the work of our hands. Remember in Exodus 28, verse 20, he says that you are to take some of the blood, you're to put it on the right lobe of his ear, on his right thumb, and on his right big toe. The exposed parts of the priest's body were to be covered by blood and set apart so that he would hear the word of God, so that he would do the work with his hands, and he would walk in obedience according to the Lord's ways. May we hear the word. May we do the work with our hands and may we walk in obedience as his scripture tells us to do. So the questions are that I have is are you using your body for your glory or for his? Is it for his service or your own? Is it for the advancement of your career or your work or is it the advancement of his kingdom? But it's his kingdom that we are made to be priests of. And as priests, we are to be consecrated and set apart for His work as He wills it, as He would have it. Does that mean we have to give up everything we want? No. But if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, He will give us the desires of our heart. But that's when the desires of our heart line up with Him. That is being faithful with your body and being a living sacrifice. I'm going to close with a video here, and as far as practically speaking, what's the practical takeaway here? How do I do this? This the video that I want us to watch will give us practical, a practical view of what it means to be faithful with your body. I pray that we're blessed Church. I pray that we pray that we come away with a deeper understanding of what God has done for us and the links that He's gone. To dwell among us. Right here. And we can't overstate that. What that means. And that's what we share. And one of the ways that we share that is being a light to the people around us. And being faithful with our body. A living sacrifice for others. So y'all check this out. Um, And then we'll sing a song. And we'll glorify the Lord and be reminded. And go out. I love you church. You guys check this out.